Good morning. Good, good morning. Thank you, Dr. Levin. Good morning. Welcome to Pediatric Grand Rounds, January 17th, 2018. Um, thank you for braving the snow this morning and making it in. I'm, we may have a slightly light, later even crowd, but um, in, in the interest of um, giving our, our visiting speaker, but our welcoming home. Numerous slides we saw in her PowerPoint, so I think there's a lot of uh, important information to get to. I want to let Dr. White, Stephanie White, Assistant Professor of Pediatrics, who invited Dr. Hayes-Jordan here, uh, both for our department as part of, I, I think, um, uh, the Geisel uh, Diversity Liaison Program that she leads. So, Stephanie, introduce us to Dr. Hayes-Jordan. Good morning, everyone. So I have the pleasure of introducing you to Dr. Andrea Hayes-Jordan, a professor of surgical oncology and the director of surgery and pediatric surgical oncology at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. Dr. Hayes-Jordan, as um, Keith alluded to, is very green as an 87 Dartmouth College alum, and then she stayed and went to the then Dartmouth Medical School, and she is a class of 91 alum. And so as I think about um, the month of January and the celebrations that take place across the country celebrating the life and work of Dr. Martin Luther King, the theme that I think unites many of these thoughts is the hope and inspiration he provided to the nation at that time. And although in a very scientific way, I think that Dr. Hayes-Jordan evokes these same feelings for many of her learners and patients that she interacts with. After graduating from Dartmouth Medical School, Dr. Hayes-Jordan completed her general surgery residency at the University of California, Davis, and then she went on to complete an almost never-ending list of fellowships across the country. She did a molecular biology fellowship at UCSF, a pediatric surgery oncology fellowship at St. Jude's Children's Research Fellowship in Memphis, um, a melanoma and sarcoma fellowship at MD Anderson, and finally a pediatric surgery fellowship at the Hospital of Sick Children in Toronto. So if you residents think that you're done after this, you still have a long ways that you can go. So um, what makes her so inspirational? Dr. Hayes Jordan was the first black female pediatric surgeon in the United States. And you look at her and you think she's so young, how can that possibly be? But then you think about everything else that's going on and it is possible. As a pediatric surgical oncologist, Dr. Hayes-Jordan specializes in the surgical treatment of advanced and refractory abdominal sarcomas. In 2006, she pioneered a technique using heated chemotherapy for the treatment of desmosplastic small round cell tumors, a real form of cancer that presents as dozens to hundreds of small tumors in the abdomen. And this is a a cancer that most of the time when it was opened up previously, it would just be so overwhelming that there would be no surgical options for. Academically, Dr. Hayes-Jordan serves as an, on a number of committees at MD Anderson as a surgery residency director and the pediatric surgical oncology fellowship director at MD Anderson. She's published over 80 articles in journals across the pediatric surgery, surgery and oncology fields. And as she still has a lab, I feel like she's the epitome of the triple threat in academia. Um, and so I look forward to having you guys learn more about her work. Thank you. Well, good morning. It's really a pleasure to be here. I definitely feel like I'm home. Every time I pull up to the green, I just get a big smile on my face. I really enjoy being here. 
So today I'm going to share with you uh, my journey of how we get to developing a new program for any population in medicine, but specifically for children. Uh, there are obviously some bumps in the road that can occur. So hopefully by the end of the talk, you appreciate uh, a bit about uh, what these patients present with, how they can be dealt with, and some of the uh, new treatments that uh, I've been able to develop. So hopefully by the end of the presentation, you'll understand what sarcomatosis is, what this word HIPEC means, and how this strange tumor called desmoplastic small round cell tumor, how it behaves. I don't have any disclosures. So children can present with this very rare form of intra-abdominal tumor dissemination. And sarcomas is really the most common way that that can present. And most of the time when surgeons look at these CAT scans or MRIs, they sort of shrug their shoulders and say, I'm sorry, there's nothing we can do. And complete surgical resection has often seemed impossible. And most of these children are offered only palliative care. So what we found is that in select cases, a very aggressive surgical approach can result in successful treatment. And so I've been successful in removing hundreds to thousands of these tumors. Some of the operations take 12 to 22 hours or so. 22 hours is the longest one that I've done. And uh, being the first person performing HIPEC in a child, with MD Anderson is the first center to develop that. So in 2006, I performed the first uh, HIPEC. This was done uh, as a phase one trial because it had never been done in children before. And so obviously you have to show that it's safe and have FDA, et cetera, looking over your shoulder. Then we had to temporarily pause the protocol, and I'll talk to you about that, when we encountered some toxicity in patients, which you would imagine would occur, and how we were able to mitigate that toxicity. And then the phase two trial that completed in June is actually going to be published uh, next month and shows that we're really able to effectively treat these patients and really improve their outcome. So how does sarcomatosis look in a child or adolescent? So here's an example. It's a five-year-old male who presented with abdominal distension and discomfort. Usually it doesn't cause very much pain. Usually it's sort of this vague discomfort, and most of the time the parents think, well, maybe it's constipation or gas or something like that. They come to the emergency room and inevitably get a CAT scan, which shows the societies and uh, what we used to call carcinomatosis. And here's an example of actually the second patient that we enrolled on the protocol. Oh, I don't know if you can see it. Um, we might have to turn the, I don't know if we can turn the front lights down. But um, here you can see there's some peritoneal uh, carcinomatosis here and some ascites. It's not really projecting very well at all, unfortunately. Um, and then at post, uh, post-operatively, this is the post-operative CAT scan that basically shows that the, all of the disease has been removed, the ascites is resolved, and this particular child um, is still alive more than 10 years later. Here's another example of a 10-year-old male with a similar presentation, except this time there's no ascites. So, and all the images I'm going to show you are all desmoplastic small round cell tumor. So, the, instead of those little tiny nodules that you saw in the previous image, now you see these very large implants that are diffuse amongst the abdominal cavity, but there's probably only about five or six of them. Here's the bladder. There's a tumor behind the bladder. It's a very typical location. Pretty much 100% of the patients have that. And then this large tumor implant that's likely in the omentum and then a smaller one here. 
Another way that they can present is after suspected sports injuries. So this uh, 13-year-old was uh, surfing <clears throat> and thought that there was some abdominal pain from falling uh, from surfing, but there was no fever, no fatigue, no nausea, no vomiting. They don't have weight loss. They don't have diarrhea or constipation. And again, it looks very different in this image. So this is the thickened tumor on the peritoneum. This is a liver floating in the middle. This is a thickened tumor on the peritoneum. This is ascites um, all around. And if you look carefully here, there's also tumor behind the right kidney. So it basically infiltrates the peritoneal surfaces of the abdominal cavity. It also spans into the young adult age range. So if you look here again, you see that same thickening on the diaphragm of the tumor. And here's the liver in the middle. And then again, a tumor between the bladder and the rectum. This is a very typical location, again, for DSRCT is between the bladder and the rectum. Here's an 18-year-old. Um, and the, the point of me sort of iterating this, this, these images of the pelvic mass is that, again, between the bladder and the rectum, here is this large tumor. But after chemotherapy, these reduced to such a size that we're able to remove these and not remove the bladder or rectum, which is against the surgical principles for other disease, disease categories. So in this particular patient, and I'll just scroll through the images, you can see the tumor here in the middle. But in this particular patient, we were able to remove that without removing the bladder and rectum. So here's an intraoperative image. The foot of the patient is at the top of your screen. The head is at the bottom of your screen. And you're looking down into the distal colon and rectum. So you see all these white circular implants. Those are all the tumors extensively down here. You can't see the bladder because these tumors are covering the bladder. And there's another one here. There's a little teeny tiny one here. And so just in this image, there's probably 40 or 50 tumors just in this small space of the pelvis. And this is, this is looking up into the right upper quadrant. So here's my hand is on the liver. Patient's head is to your right. Patient's feet are to your left. It's a midline incision. These are tumors on the right diaphragm. So you can imagine looking at this and thinking there's absolutely nothing we can do. But in fact, you can resect this completely. This is another image of the omentum. Here's the transverse colon and the omentum with these little small dots uh, of white uh, implants of tumor. And this is another image of the sort of the left flank. So this, you can see the colon behind it. And this, I'm just lifting up the peritoneum on the left side, and there's just this carpet of tumors here. So as I mentioned, you can actually resect these, even though uh, it looks daunting. So this is an image of the same patient I just showed you with the diaphragm tumor. So here's the liver here. Again, the head of the patient is to your right, feet are to your left. I've dissected this peritoneum off of the diaphragm. These retractors are holding up the uh, right costal margin. And behind here is normal diaphragm, and I've just taken the tumor off with the peritoneum here. And so you can see here the um, tumors underneath here with this peritoneal layer. And after a couple hours of work, this is completely removed, and there's no diaphragm muscle in the specimen. So emphasizing that an organ-sparing technique is necessary to remove these tumors, and you can see why it takes all day to do the surgeries. This is a similar thing in the pelvis, those pelvic tumors that I showed you previously. So here's the tumor. This is all tumor in the pelvis. So imagine that the uh, bladder uh, used, to, excuse me, the bladder used to be here on this side. So this peritoneum is on top of the bladder. This is where the rectum uh, and colon were. So this was peeled off of the rectum and colon. And you see um, this is right and left, this large specimen of tumor that was removed uh, completely.
This is the pelvis after removal of that tumor. So here is, uh, you're looking down into the pelvis. The feet of the patient are up at the top of the screen. This clamp is on the bladder. This is the right vas deferens, the left vas deferens, the rectum, and this complete pelvic area has been cleaned out of tumor. This is an example of sort of the limits of what we can do with this surgery. This unfortunate uh, young lady had a P53 mutation, and so this was her third cancer. And she, this is the mesentery of the small intestine, and you see these very teeny tiny implants through the entire mesentery, and this was her entire small bowel was infiltrated with this, and unfortunately we really couldn't help this young lady. So the, the technique, as I mentioned, is really a meticulous dissection, a bowel sparing technique, diaphragm stripping, and uh, here you can see images of, this is the uh, cecum with the appendix and the distal ileum, and then there's a tumor right here, and this is just showing that we're able to remove the tumor and spare the cecum and the ileum uh, at the same time. So DSRCT is really a very rare tumor. We're not even sure the exact incidence in the country, but it's somewhere around 70 cases per year in the entire United States, we think, 50, somewhere between 50 and 70. The problem is that it's such a young tumor and its description that we don't know very much about it. We do know that uh, about 90% of the patients are male, which makes it interesting. I'll mention that later when I talk about my research and that the median age is really around 18, so between 12 and 22, although I have a number of five and six-year-olds with this disease. As you saw previously, it presents with abdominal metastases, sometimes ascites. The survival is pretty poor. If you look up the literature on this tumor, the survival uh, usually is around 15%, um, but all patients will have more than one tumor at diagnosis, so that sort of captures all of them, is that they don't ever present with one tumor because we don't actually know where this malignancy begins. We don't actually know the organ of origin. It was first described by Gerald and Rossi at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in 1989, and it was found to have a reciprocal translocation that defines the disease. So there's an 1122 uh, translocation that results in a, in a short arm of 13 and 12 that results in this fusion that biologically is a Ewing sarcoma and a Wilms tumor gene combined, and it, it makes it for a very interesting uh, malignancy to study. We think it comes from mesothelial cells or mesenchymal cells, and that we think that because of the epithelial differentiation that we see in the peritoneum, and sometimes it invades the pleura as well. And we think it's from highly undifferentiated mesenchymal cells because in late stages it can present in the brain. <laughs> The most common locations are the omentum, the small bowel, the pelvis. The tumor deposits are in common places where there's peritoneal pooling of fluid, so behind the liver, above, at the level of the diaphragm, in the pelvis, um, if it happens in a girl, around the ovaries and uterus as well. And this is, um, this is one of the 20-hour surgeries, and you can see in this CAT scan that, that pretty much all of the bowel is covered with this tumor. Um, and you can't barely make out any of the other normal organs. As I showed you, they were very, they're very firm and they're very white color, which is very different than other cancers that we see that are more sort of flesh colored and purplish. Um, they can be very friable when they're diagnosed and they can be very large, as you saw, up to 40 centimeters sometimes. And this is what they look like microscopically. So this is very interesting. If you look here, this is, as the title alludes to, it's a small round blue cell tumor. 
So you see the small round blue cells histologically and these cords of fibrous stroma which interdigitate between the small round blue cells. So this is the desmoplastic component. So what tends to happen is that the desmoplastic component um, does not respond to the chemotherapy. So these small round blue cells go away with treatment. And so what I'm left with at surgery is this desmoplastic component that doesn't respond because it's not cellular and it's not, the cells are not dividing. So I was interested in looking at my own patient's tissue. That was a pathologic specimen, but this particular specimen was taken out of the omentum of, of one of the first patients that we did. And just here is to point out, um, this is at diagnosis, the small round blue cell component and the normal omentum at high power that you see here. So this is an interesting specimen. I don't know if you can make it out. So there's, here's the, this is a tumor implant, and this is the peritoneum on either side of it. So remember I was showing you how it infiltrates the peritoneum. So I took normal peritoneum out that's around the tumor to see what it looked like microscopically. And when you look at this area here that's adjacent to the tumor nodule that actually appears normal to the naked eye, you see that there's actually tumor cells infiltrating into the peritoneum. So the question is, are they coming from the peritoneum in or from the tumor out? And we still don't know the answer to that. This is another interesting specimen. Unfortunately, it's not projecting well, but this, is, this appeared to be normal peritoneum. So I took out what I thought was normal peritoneum, <laughs> did not see any tumor cells in it. And when you look at it microscopically, you can see that down here at high power, there are actually tumor cells infiltrating in this, what apparently was normal peritoneum. So... Um, what is this HIPEC that we're talking about? So after you do the complete resection, what actually uh, does this HIPEC do? Well, this is a regional approach to delivering chemotherapy. So you can imagine that most of these patients, the tumor is limited to the abdominal cavity. So it makes sense to sort of treat the source where the tumor is locally. If you had a tumor in the arm, you take out the piece of the muscle. If you have a tumor in the peritoneum, you want to address that area. So there's a selective lethal effect of supernormal temperatures in cancer cells. So up to uh, 50 degrees Celsius, 50, at 50 degrees Celsius, normal organs will become affected, but less than 50 degrees Celsius doesn't affect normal organs. And there's an additive effect of the heat and the chemotherapy that synergizes and causes cytotoxicity. And these are the drugs that have been studied previously in adult cancers that were synergized with heat and are known to have increased cytotoxicity. So what happens is there's the, the heat plus the chemotherapy uses capillary diffusion. So I use cisplatin in these patients. I chose out of those three drugs to use cisplatin because the toxicity level was a little bit lower. Cisplatin is a large platinum ionized compound, and because it's large, when you pour it into the abdominal cavity, very little of it gets absorbed systemically. So you, it's, it's an advantage because now you've done the surgery, you've removed the tumor, and now you're going to expose the surfaces where you've removed the tumor to this potentially cytotoxic uh, regimen of chemotherapy. So you can maintain a much higher concentration in the abdomen than you could if you were given the drug systemically. So this is a very old study done in adults in um, the late 80s, early 90s, which showed that if you give 100 to 400 milligrams per meter squared of cisplatin, you only absorb 0 0.38 to 33 micrograms in your blood. So that's a great ratio when you're trying to treat uh, a regional area. So this is how 
it works. The uh, patient is actually lying on a cooling blanket. There's a midline incision here. After the, the tumor surgery part is completed, the skin is closed temporarily. This is a very simple pump. It's the same pump we use for cardiac surgery, except we put chemotherapy in it. So the drug goes in here through this plastic tubing into the abdomen and then out this exit tubing back through the heating device and recirculates for an hour and a half. And during that hour and a half, you gently agitate the abdominal cavity to evenly diffuse the chemotherapy and hopefully provide the cytotoxicity. <laughs> so the other thing you see here are these temperature probes that connect to the computer. Those give us a constant reading of the temperature. Our aim is to get it around 41 degrees Celsius, and we want the entire abdominal cavity right, left, up, down to receive that temperature and the chemotherapy. So that is the purpose of the monitoring. This is what it looks like in real life. Uh, these are the, the, this is the uh, outflow tubing and the funnel at the foot of the patient, and this is uh, closer to the head of the patient. And there's the tubing, and here are the fiber optic temperature probes coming out of the center uh, of the midline incision. So this cisplatin doesn't have any local peritoneal toxicity. It doesn't cross-react with anything they've been given systemically. And it, we give them a neutralizing agent intravenously that hopefully binds up about 70% or 80% of the drug that does get into the systemic circulation. So what type of pediatric patients may or may not be a candidate for this therapy? Certainly the most common is what I mentioned, the desmoplastic small round cell tumor. There's some other sarcomas that it can be applicable to and some ovarian cancers in children as well that can have a similar presentation as, as adults. I've also used it in rhabdomyosarcoma and I'll show you a case of histocytic sarcoma and in colon cancer that occurs in teenagers, which is also extraordinarily rare. So the journey began with the phase one trial opening and getting permission from the NIH to do the trial, which was a bit challenging because um, the adult surgeons um, had, who were doing it on adults at the time thought I was crazy when I said I was going to do it on a child, and the pediatric community had never heard of it and thought I was crazy to pour hot chemotherapy into a child's belly. <laughs> so, so it was quite challenging to get the whole trial off the ground, but once we did, Things went very well. Um, this this is the one. This is probably the third. This is the third patient we enrolled on the tri trial. She's a two. She was two years old. She's still alive. Two years old with histocytic sarcoma, and she uh, came to me. And the the pediatrician said, "Well, we're going to put her on hospice, but the mom is insisting to talk to the surgeon." And she she apologized about five times. She says, "I looked at the scans. I know it's not resectable, but the mom is insisting on talking to you." So I said, well, actually, you know, we have this phase one trial open, so we might be able to uh, help her. So this is how her disease presented. This is a PET scan, for those of you not familiar with PET scans. This is, uh, you can barely see her, her this is her outline of her, her, her head is up here. This is a skeleton. And all these black areas are tumor, except for here, which is her bladder. So this is the, her diaphragm here. So there's tumor in the diaphragm, the liver, the abdomen. And you can see better on the CAT scan over here that, her entire abdomen is infiltrated with this tumor, including liver metastases. We were able to offer her the HIPEC on the clinical trial, and uh, she is in fifth grade now, doing very well. And she had a complete resection, obviously. So, of course, with any new therapy, there's going to be toxicity. And as I mentioned before, there were some bumps in the road with toxicity. So 
I'll describe to you how we evaluated the patients uh, for toxicity in the phase one trial and how we move forward with uh, dealing with the toxicities. So right now I've done um, probably almost, almost 200 cases, but these are just a description of the first 27 cases. So these include, I mean, remember this is a phase one trial, so we took all comers in, in the trial that had diffuse abdominal disease, and this is a list of the diagnoses that they had. And so we, uh, all of them had surgery, all of them had cisplatin at 100 milligrams per meter squared. We tried to go up to 150 milligrams per, per meter squared, and that's where we had some toxicity. The um, adult dose is 250 milligrams per meter squared, so we were trying to get there but didn't, didn't quite make it because of toxicity. So when we looked at the, the toxicity, these kids were followed for up to 60 months. The operation time in this cohort of patients was 9 to 15 hours. The average hospital stay was 10 days. We did do a parallel quality of life study that I'm not going to mention today because of time, but it did show that around between 30 and 60 days, they get back to a normal quality of life. The dose-limiting toxicity in this study was renal failure, and so five uh, patients had a grade three renal failure, and a couple patients, 6%, required dialysis. So this is where we shut the protocol down on after that second, uh, third patient, and we did a very detailed analysis that I'll share with you in the next couple of slides. The other toxicities were what we expected, some transient hematologic toxicities as well as hepatic toxicities that were transient and uh, uh, subclinical decrease in hearing. We had no mortality and to date have had no mortality in any patient that has undergone this operation. The dose limiting toxicity again was the creatinine going up. We did have one patient who had a uh, subclinical cardiomyopathy and he had about a kilo and a half of tumor removed and I think it really, not I think, the cardiologist told me it really stressed his heart. And it did was it was reversed with beta blockers, and some transient bowel obstructions. We've had no post-op bleeding or take back to the operating room uh, patients in these cases. So again, when we had the patients that ended up on dialysis, I was very concerned because the goal was not to hurt any patients, but to provide for them some uh, longer-term survival. So we did a critical evaluation of renal toxicity. And in this study, we included the pediatric cohort as well as the adult cohort. And we looked at 21 different outcome measures that included how much fluid they got in the operating room, what kind of fluid, how much blood, what kind of blood, anything that we could imagine that could cause nephrotoxicity. And so when we looked at the fluids given before surgery, it turned out that the intravenous fluids that were given uh, before surgery varied from patient to patient. So in some patients, we were able to get insurance uh, clearance to admit them to the hospital the day before. In those patients, they received intravenous therapy, uh, intravenous fluids uh, at one and a half maintenance therapy prior to the surgery the next day. And other patients, the insurance companies did not allow us to do that, and therefore they only got hydrated in the operating room. And it was quite clear that the ones who had more than a maintenance rate had a much higher incidence of grade three and four renal toxicity compared to the patients that got admitted the day before and had more aggressive hydration. And then the other thing that became important on univariate analysis was the timing of the sodium thiosulfate. As I mentioned, this drug is given to try to mop up any platinum molecules that escape in the blood. And at the time we were doing our trial, we weren't sure what the timing should be of giving that. 
because if you give it at the beginning of the HIPAC, it might actually abrogate the effects of the HIPAC. So if you get it at the end, we thought that would be better. So we had these three groups of patients, one that had it at the beginning, one that had it 30 minutes into the HIPAC, and one that had it at the end. And it turned out that the lowest toxicity was either giving it at the beginning or at 30 minutes. So the preoperative hydration was really on multivariate analysis and the sodium thiosulfate was also, um, I'm sorry, that's probably my alarm on my phone. Uh, <laughs> sorry about that. Um, but those two factors remain significant on multivariate analysis. So the grade three or four renal toxicity, um, just press some button on there to <laughs> stop it. Apologize for that. Um, so we had this grade three, four toxicity that we were able to get back down to 0% after we instituted a very aggressive perioperative hydration and um, were able to give the sodium thiosulfate at 30 minutes into the pack. So this is really the impact of a new surgery. So these are data just from our institution, from MD Anderson Cancer Center, on patients with desmoplastic small round cell tumor. So of course I did not do this in isolation. This was a multidisciplinary team that I instituted when we started this technique. And I arrived at MD Anderson in 2004. So from 1989 to 2003, the survival, this is survival curve, the survival was 10% essentially. And now with our multidisciplinary team from, and our aggressive approach from 2004 to 2010, just a small cohort of patients, we're up to 50% survival. So we are making some progress. We're not, it's not quite a home run yet, but we are making some progress. The very first results I published were in 2013 with the first 26 patients. And these patients were more selected. So the initial patients were everybody for the phase one trial. These were patients that had no disease outside the abdominal cavity, so I was hoping would have a better outcome. And we were able to cite uh, a reduction, meaning taking out all the tumor, uh, except for maybe a little bit. And then they all got radiation because they were, as I mentioned before, they had a Ewing's-type tumor, and that was part of the previous protocol. So we, in those small cohort of patients, we were able to show that the median survival improved from 26 months to 63 months, with the aggressive uh, chemotherapy in the operating room at HIPAC. So the patients who did not respond were excluded uh, from the protocol. So this is ones that had uh, progressed on chemotherapy, had disease outside the abdomen, had poor performance status or any organ dysfunction, or could not receive a complete resection. So now moving on to the phase two trial, this is what the phase two trial was from January uh, 12 to 13, and we had most of the patients had DSRCT, but we also took a number of other patients into the phase two trial that met those criteria that I just mentioned. So they all received neoadjuvant chemotherapy at eight to 10 cycles, then they got the surgery, then they got whole abdominal radiation, and then adjuvant chemotherapy and surveillance. So the one-year survival was 93% for the DSRCT patients, and the median survival actually has not been reached. And you can see the p-value here showing statistical significance. The non-DSRCT patients, mainly the rhabdomyosarcoma patients um, here, had a much worse outcome in overall survival. So you can see 42 months for DSRCT and 12 months for the other patients, and similar differences in numbers and recurrence-free survival. The other thing we wanted to know was if you had liver metastasis, if that made any difference in the outcome. And so here you'll see the total number of recurrences in patients with or without liver metastasis. 
So it turns out that if they don't have any liver disease, we have 100% uh, efficacy of the HIPAC. We have zero recurrences in the abdominal cavity. And if you do have liver disease, three of those patients recurred in the liver uh, despite our attempts to treat the liver. So this is the overall survival for the entire patient cohort, which shows, again, around 50%, and the disease-free survival um, as well. And this is Kaplan-Meier curves that we'll be showing for the next couple of slides. What's interesting that we found in this initial cohort, so this is at 30 months, so this is early data. The black line is the DSRCT patients, and the red line are all the other patients who underwent the regimen. And you can see there's a approximately 80 per 70 to 80 percent survival at three years, whereas everyone else, uh, unfortunately, had died by 15 months that did not have DSRCT. Then when we looked further to see how, you know, on a longer follow-up, which is why the paper is just now being published now, and I'm sorry, this is the disease-free survival of the same cohort of patients to 30 months. But if you look at uh, further out, it turns out that they start to fall off. So here's three years, and then after between three and five years, they start to fall off. And so that really gave me the impetus to figure out how to get a home run. So they're not recurring in the abdomen. We fixed that problem. But they're recurring in other sites, such as the lungs, the lymph nodes, et cetera. So we really need to find better systemic therapy so that we can, so we can really get the home run. And the same thing on recurrence-free survival. So the phase two trial results, there were no deaths, no returns to the operating room. Here's a list of the complications. It's most often was wound infections or urinary tract infections, but some very transient hematologic toxicities. So we know that, D, that the HIPEC provides a durable local control, and the cytoreductive surgery really should be considered as part of the multimodal treatment in DSRCT. However, the patients with rhabdomyosarcoma and other tumors, we really have a lot, of, lot more work to do to figure out how to address uh, those in that, in that way. So before I talk a little bit about my lab research and how I'm, we're trying to get to that home run, I want to mention to you this, uh, perhaps a new staging system that I've been proposing. So after I, uh, when I mentioned to you that all of the patients have abdominal metastases, as a, as a clinician, as a healthcare provider, it's hard to communicate to other healthcare providers what's going on if every patient is stage four. So every patient can't be stage four because then it, it makes it very difficult to compare treatment outcomes. Not only that, it's not fair to the patients that have liver metastasis to compare them to the patients that don't have liver metastasis, for example. So in this new staging system, stage one would be tumors that only are in one side of the abdominal cavity, for which we have a cohort of about seven or eight patients. Stage two patients would be any number, two, three, four hundred, a thousand, however many tumor metastases in the abdominal cavity, but no liver metastases. And then stage four would be the distant metastases with lymph node disease. So to me, that sort of makes sense uh, to, to divide them into those stages for the DSRCTs. And when we look at them that way, we find that the stage one patients have 100% survival, stage two, 71%, stage three, 40%, and stage four, 31%, which sort of goes more along with what you would expect. And then when we looked at a multivariate analysis, this was statistically significant, such that the stage three and stage four patients certainly had a higher risk of disease recurrence, as you would expect. And patients without extra abdominal metastases did very well and had a lower risk of death, which you would also expect. 
If they had incomplete resection, that was sort of a deal breaker. You really have to get 99.9% or 100% of the disease out to really see any advantage in outcome. And if you don't have liver disease, obviously it would be, it would be better. So our, our conclusion from the DSRCT patients is that they have a better outcome, that you have to do a complete cytoreduction. The surgical morbidity is very low. The liver disease doesn't permit, prevent you from doing HIPEC, but there has to be an acknowledgement that those patients have a higher incidence of relapse, and we really need to find better therapies for them. Um, I always see more disease in the operating room than we see on CAT scan, and I now don't do the operation if they have any disease outside the abdominal cavity. So once again, how do we get the home run? So <clears throat> What I wanted to know is where does this tumor come from? So you can't reproduce a tumor in a mouse model if you don't know what the origin of the tumor is. And so we, I spent the last number of years really trying to figure this out. And once we figure out the tissue of origin and then look at the genes, we can find better chemotherapy. And can we utilize this Ewing's translocation, uh, the genetic uh, makeup of this tumor, to find some clues? <laughs> we definitely need an animal model of DSRCT. We need a hypothesis that goes along that's rational. So I was looking at uh, Ewing's sarcoma in my previous lab experience, and Ewing's sarcoma has the presence of these uh, what's called death receptors. And death receptors uh, provide dependent apoptosis as a mechanism for cell death. In, uh, and, and I found out that those receptors are also present in DSRCT. So when we look at the flow cytometry for DSRCT, uh, again, I apologize, it's not projecting well, you can see that these DR4 and DR5 are the two primary receptors in the cell surface, and we found them uh, prevalent in, in pretty much all of the DSRCT cells. And then when we looked at, um, this is immunohistochemistry, those brown spots are the uh, effective staining of the DSRCT tumor before and after treatment, uh, showing that there is still presence of these uh, death receptors on the cell surface. And again, um, in the DR4, which is the other death receptor, um, it's present uh, as well on the cell surface. This is a high-power view of DR5, which is the most prevalent receptor on the DSRCT cells. And so the red color is the prevalence of the DR5 receptor on the DSRCT cells. So we found it, I found a drug, not me, but there was a small company that was producing a drug at the same time that I was doing my laboratory experiments. And it turns out that this drug targets the death receptors as well as some other parts of the cell cycle pathway and has apoptotic effects that we see in other tumor types. And this is just a complicated schema that, that is not expecting to make a point of, only to say that these are some other drugs that also bind and can cause these downstream functions. And this drug, OCT201, inhibits the, the process of apoptosis and cell cycle induction downstream a bit. So, this, when you use ONC201, it blocks all of these pathways simultaneously, which makes it a really ideal drug to use in a tumor like DSRCT. So what I did was I first looked at the ONC201 in vitro for the DSRCT cells and saw that there's a dose-dependent cytotoxicity that we see when we expose the cells to ONC201. And so the next step was to try to find out if we could uh, use this in a mouse model. So we then looked at clonogenicity assays to make sure that this was really uh, an effect that we were seeing and not an artifact. 
So this blue, these blue and red are, are the blue is a control. The red is a low dose of ONC201. The uh, yellow is the high dose that we found in vitro was effective. And these are um, dishes of, of clones of cells. And you can see at the low dose, there's still cell activity, whereas at the high dose in the Petri dish, there really is not. It really completely abrogates the, clonogen, uh, the clones of DSRCT. And when you look at the apoptotic markers of DSRCT, this is caspases 3 and 8 and PARP and cleave PARP, you can see on this Western blot that these are, um, when you increase the dose of ONC201, that you're able to get more apoptosis. Um, between 1 and 5, there really is the, the biggest drop-off. 1 and 5, that's, uh, those are micromolar treatments. And this is just a closer-up view of the PARP, which is a very critical aspect of apoptosis. And at 5 micromolar concentration, there's significant uh, apoptosis in the DSRCT cells. So remember, I was telling you that it happened in 90% males. So when I was trying to develop a mouse model, what I found out was if you inject the cells under the skin, under the liver, under the kidney, in the abdomen, take fresh tissue from the OR, put it in the belly, all those things weren't working. And I had been trying for years. It turns out if you inject the DSRCT cells around the testicle, you can completely duplicate this tumor in a mouse. So this is an example of how we do the injection in immunocompromised mice, where the tumor cells get injected around the peritesticular tissue in a mouse. And then we began treatment with this ONC201. The cells were labeled with luciferase so that we could identify them uh, when the mice were being put to sleep and that we wouldn't have to sacrifice the mouse to identify growth. So this is just a baseline study as showing an injection and then different amounts of tumor in the abdominal cavity of the mouse. And if you look at this image over here, this is a mouse's abdomen open. This is the liver up here. And these, all these small white dots are tumor implants in the abdominal cavity. And it turns out that the mice also have disease in the lymph nodes, which we see in humans all the time, usually in the supraclavicular lymph nodes, and it had the same thing in the mice. And also in the peripancreatic tissue, we saw tumor implants in the mouse model. So we just published this as the first orthotopic xenograft model of DSRCT. As far as the ONC201, uh, these panel of mice just show that the, at the high doses, when we treated the mouse, um, these large sort of purple areas are the untreated mice uh, that you're able to uh, can completely block the tumor growth. And then when you stop the treatment, that the tumor begins to regrow. So the low-dose group had a very uh, low response uh, to the treatment but, and had a rebound growth, uh, 50%. But in the high-dose group, we had a 40% response without, um, that had a 40% response that didn't respond to treatment, excuse me, and 60% who did. Um, and that's pretty good for cancer therapy because that's a single drug. And so that was a really impressive response rate. So we, we're now embarking on a, on a phase one trial with the ONC201 and the DSRCT. Um, after the results of this study uh, that we've that uh, that's been uh, recently published, so I just want to acknowledge my team. This is a definitely a team effort. Um, lots of people, uh, and between the people in my lab and the people in the operating room, that helped me embark on this journey of trying to really find a um, a treatment, a long-term treatment, and a, hopefully a cure one day before I retire of uh, this uh, abdominal sarcoma. So thank you very much for your attention.
thank you. I find this astronomically amazing because I do pediatric critical care, so it's completely on my own. But I wondered, it sounds like you, when you first got there, you were one of the people that would resect because other people would look at this carpet of tumors and say, forget it. Right. Do you have any patients that you resected but didn't do high tech? Because I would imagine that the approach of let's just take out all these tumors, they must have had some prolongation in their survival, even without the high tech. But it sounds like you probably were starting these all at the same time. Yeah, exactly. So I haven't personally done that. Um, my colleague, who's the head of pediatric surgery at Memorial Sloan Kettering, he does not do HIPEC. I haven't convinced him yet, um, but hopefully this last publication will. So that's sort of my control group, if you will. So about 30% of so, it's hard to know because his patients are, um, some of them have disease in the liver, some of them don't. So maybe comparing apples and oranges, but they end up coming to me for HIPEC. So when they relapse in the abdomen, they'll come to me and then I'll redo the surgery and do HIPEC. So there is a number, which I'm not quite sure of, but it's probably around 30 or 40% of relapse when you just do the surgical resection without the HIPEC. But we haven't been able to sort of scientifically show that. And now we've, we've sort of lost our equipoise. There's, and I have no equipoise, and the patients that come to me, they find me on the Internet, and that's what they want. So there's no way to do a randomized trial at this point. Yes. Good question. I'm biased. Great talk. I'm such a pediatric surgeon, and I like oncology. So, um, uh, three questions. One, in your staging system, did you see any genetic markers or biological markers of the tumors that are stage four compared to stage one? where you could do biological risk stratification, as most of the cancers go? Yeah, so I'm working with my genomics colleagues now. We have a cohort of just 25 samples from the operating room, but we're doing extensive, we're doing whole genome sequencing, we're doing exon sequencing. We're trying to figure out where we can find the commonalities. Um, so we will do that eventually. We've got a long ways to go to get there, but yes, that's part of the plan. Then is there an androgen receptor in these tumors? Uh, yeah, I didn't talk about that. Yes. <laughs> uh, yes, there is. There's an androgen receptor on the cell surface. Um, I haven't uh, submitted that manuscript yet. There's androgen receptors on the cell surface, and when you look at the genomic array of the tumors, you find that the cancer pathways are overlap with prostate cancer pathways. And then actually the DSRCT cells are sensitive to the same drugs they use in castrate-resistant prostate cancer. So we're going down that pathway now because I, I don't know anything about prostate cancer. And I'm trying to, we're trying to figure out how we can utilize the androgen receptors to really provide a better treatment. So actually, so yeah. <laughs> so I, I have two questions. One is, on 201 interfere with any of NGFBD and F, the neurotrophin signaling paths? No, it don't, they don't. Okay, so that's good news. Mm -hmm. And the other one is, is that I take it in your patients that you see a, a, a high point of presentation in about the time of early adolescence getting towards Exactly. Mm -hmm. And so it is the cell surface androgen receptor, not the nuclear one? Not the nuclear, it's a cell surface okay. one, yeah. And when you, I didn't show the slide, but when you break up the, the two parts of the androgen receptor, we, look, we looked at all the cofactors as well for androgen receptor, and NCOA1 and 2 are primarily uh, expressed, but we don't know, uh, we, we still got a lot of work to do, but, but we're going down that road. Thanks. And a great talk. Thanks. Sorry. Yeah, great talk. I was wondering, um, Everybody finds great, you know, uh, something that works. There's certainly things in the future. Do you see anything where a modification can be used in the pleural cavity or 
or somewhere else. So taking what's worked and trying to apply it to another organ or to improve it. Yeah, we actually have a phase one trial open now for uh, metastatic sarcomas to the pleural cavity. So the, if you have unilateral pleural metastasis or parenchymal metastasis, I'm working with my thoracic surgeons and we're doing pneumonectomies and intrathoracic chemotherapy. It's called high tech. Um, so uh, we're, we're, we've just, we've, I think we're on our fifth or sixth enrollment, so we'll see how that goes. Mm -hmm. um, that was a fantastic talk. Thank you for coming. Um, you had mentioned that you haven't convinced your colleague at Memorial Sloan Kettering to, to start HIPEC yet. Have you convinced anybody else? That you now have a great single center studies. Is it broadened or is there any other centers that are doing HIPEC? Uh, yes, I think because it's, uh, there's really no other standard treatment for this horrible disease that um, uh, other centers have asked me to come there and teach them. So I've gone around the world. I've been to Switzerland, Moscow, Poland, et cetera, teaching the technique to other pediatric surgeons. So those centers are doing it now that they've learned the technique. So there's several centers in the United States, Chicago, Detroit, um, Miami, and I think that's it beside our center, who are doing it now. And, and oh, sorry, Wisconsin. They've only done a handful. You know, remember, these are rare. So they haven't published their results yet. The only people that published their results were is the group in Israel that I, I taught um, a number of years ago, and they just published their series and they're seeing the same efficacy. Yeah. So stepping back a little bit from pediatric cancer, you alluded to something in your talk about uh, your adult colleagues were skeptical about doing it in kids, and your pediatric colleagues were skeptical about this adult treatment. How can you sort of say that there are these? What, what, what tips might you have about how you cross those bridges and cross those divides mm. in where children's hospitals and hospitals similarly benefit from that cross-pollination? But what, what, what are the tips in terms of how you both sides feel comfortable? Yeah, I mean, benefiting from the cross-pollination is really important because uh, obviously Anderson is a children's hospital within a hospital. I took my first job at Children's Hospital in D.C., and I tried to get this through the IRB there, and it was impossible because they had never, the concept was so out there that they couldn't even fathom it. You know, whereas when I went to Anderson, when I was recruited back to Anderson, because I did part of my fellowship at MD Anderson, they were saying, oh, you just want to do what we've done in adults and kids. Okay, no problem. I just, you just need to have a safety monitoring committee. You need to have this, you need to have that, and it was done. So that is a huge advantage because it, it, the adults are far ahead of us on many things, and we can take advantage of what they know and, and so I really actually prefer working in a hospital within a hospital. And I think just like most of our medical colleagues, people are convinced by data. And you just have to, as long as it's safe, I think the first, the first threshold is proving that you're not hurting anybody by doing whatever new treatment or new therapy that you're delivering. They're not making them worse. And then after you've shown that, then the next hurdle is showing, you know, data-wise that, hey, this really does work or really can work. or And it's it's very, um, what I've had to convince my adult colleagues of is this is different than other tumors. And just like, because it's it's a sarcoma, but it's not, a, it's very different than other sarcomas because it has this, this genetic translocation. And I having to convince them that we have to treat each disease based on its genetic component. And we're learning that for every disease, right? Not just cancers that you got to be really specific about what you're looking at and not just say, you know, sarcomas or asthma or whatever it is. So I, ultimately, it's the data that convinces them over time. 
And collegiality, you know. I, I try to I, <laughs> yes. I, I didn't say that. But I, I try to include them, you know, whenever I'm discussing it, I try to include them and say, hey, I got this kid, you know, what do you think I should do? And when you include them in sort of the thought process and they go, yeah, I guess this is the only thing you can do, you know. And so <laughs> it, yeah, including them is also helpful, I think. It seems, from what you're describing with the pictures, that great talk, by the way. Thank you. Uh, it seems, from what you're describing with the uh, surgical pictures, is that these tumors, as, as diffuse as they are, they're, they're on the surfaces. Of exactly. They don't invade. Exactly. And if they invaded, you couldn't do that. Exactly. It's very interesting to me. They don't invade. And the peritoneum provides this barrier. So I'm basically peeling the peritoneum off of the colon, off of the everything. Um, and I don't know if the peritoneum itself is a, is, could be called a primary organ of origin because it's every peritoneal surface, depending on how long the, the patient has had the disease. It's almost 100% of the time, well, actually it is 100% of the time, in, at least in the pelvis. So even in the stage one patients where I just have one side of the disease, it's in the pelvis. And even in the girls. And so there's something about the peritoneal tissue uh, that's stimulated by, who knows, the malarian system. I don't know the answer. But I, I have learned that if you don't take out that pelvic peritoneum, then they relapse as well. So there's a lot of um, things we don't know, but it is quite interesting. They don't, it does not invade organs. It does not. It's very, it's fascinating to me, actually. Do you, do you know the history of um, HIPAC? Because who thought, hey, I'm, I'm going to heat this up in this portal? Yeah, I know. <laughs> so, um, it started in uh, uh, Asia, in uh, China and Japan, where, where they have a high incidence of gastric cancer. And some scientists was looking at it in the laboratory, the heat, you remember heat shock protein? Heat shock protein is an old, old, old protein. And they realized, okay, heat can be effective and can be toxic. And the Germans were using heat uh, to treat like the whole body in cancer at that time. And they still are doing that. Um, and so the, they, through that interaction, they figured out that the heat is toxic if you add it to chemotherapy. Uh, as everyone said, fascinating. Uh, rare cancer tumor for the pediatrician. So we wish you a welcome home today. Well, thank you so much for having me. Thank you, everyone. Thank you very much.